Let's open with prayer. Father, your name is holy. And that's why we're here. That's why we're doing what we're doing. That's why we've met together. Because your name is holy. We've heard of your name. We've heard of your reputation. Many of us know you personally. We've learned of you from your word, from the way you've walked us through life. We know you. We know that your name is holy. Maybe others haven't heard of your name yet, of what you've done, of who you are. Lord, we want to rectify that this morning. Father, as we uh, open your word, as we talk about uh, what you say to us, what you've said to churches in the past, we want to learn, we want to submit to you. Lord, this uh, whole thing is about you. And so uh, we ask for your help this morning. Pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, would make these things understandable to us, that they would uh, seek right into the cracks and the crevices of who we are, that your Spirit would work there, that your Word would slice and dice there as needed or bring healing as needed. We gladly lay ourselves on uh, your operating table, Lord. Go to work. Heal us, work in us. We want to hear from you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a question this morning. When is a gentle and loving person unloving? Imagine the most gentle and loving person, always oozing love. When might that person not show love? When might that person be unloving? And it's a rhetorical question. I don't expect shouted answers or anything like that. The answer is when those that he loves are in danger. And you'll see a switch flipped. You've seen love. You've seen softness. You've seen uh, tenderness and all that. And you threaten those near him and the switch will flip and things will change. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I, I try not to you know, give recommendations about movies or whatever, especially from the pulpit. <laughs> but um, I think I can safely recommend The Blind Side. And uh, that's a movie about Michael Orr. And he's, a, he's this big, gentle, teddy bear kind of guy, but he's huge. And he gets taken in by this, this Christian family. And uh, they think, you know, he's a huge guy. You know, he, he might be good at football or whatever. So they put him out there and, and the pads are kind of small on him and stuff because he's so huge. And he's just, he's real gentle, you know, and he doesn't want to push people around until finally they learn about him that though he is, and probably even because he's such a, a gentle and loving and big guy, when you threaten those that he loves, he becomes ferocious. And that becomes the key to his, his football talent, to his football, what would end up being a football career. That, uh, they, they had to tap into that. And when, when they understood that if, if, if he would get in his mind that the quarterback was, uh, was, you know, his, his relative, someone he loved and someone was trying to hurt him, then all of a sudden he became unstoppable. And he would, he would just destroy people and decapitate them on the field. And, and, uh, they tapped into his protectiveness and they found, they found ferocity and they, they, found, uh, they found a real lion in there. And that's a little bit, a little bit 
what I like, what I want to talk about this morning. Open up, if you would, to First John. And uh, we're going to start a series on First John. We're going to spend probably, probably all spring working on this series. And uh, I, I spoke on First John a, f- a few months back, so just uh, refresh your memory there a little bit, okay? I, I don't want to rehash that whole thing. You don't want me to rehash that whole thing. So we'll we'll move on. But First John. So start at, at you know Revelation in the back of the back of your Bible, and then flip forward to get Jude, and then you get Third John, Second John, and then First John. That's where we're going to be starting today is in First John. I want to do a little bit of an introduction, just a reminder, a refresher about what we talked about last time when we talked about 1 John. First of all is uh, who wrote it? Well, John wrote it, okay? John the Apostle. And uh, doesn't doesn't uh, say that right there, but, but he's, he's the one who wrote it. And uh, John was, was, was one of the 12. He spent a lot of time with Jesus, right? He knew him personally. He had interacted with him. He had been involved uh, with him in his personal ministry during during the three years that he that he was uh, that Jesus was ministering on earth, and uh, what else do we know about John? What's he called? Well, we call him the Apostle of of Love, right? And the reason we do that is because uh, uh, he's he's referred he refers to himself that way in in the book of John when he's describing himself the the, the Apostle whom Jesus loved, and it actually said that he he leaned on Jesus' breast when they were you know sitting around the table eating and whatever. He had a very special relationship with Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was an eyewitness of all these events that, that, that went on in Jesus' life, okay? And he sat at Jesus' feet, and he learned from his teaching. So he had a very, uh, a very close relationship, not just with Jesus as a man and, uh, you know, traveling around with him and as a friend, but he was a, a very close disciple of his, a very close student of his. So that's who wrote the first epistle of John, okay? So that's, that's the Apostle John. That's the who. Now the why. Let's revisit the why of, he, of why he's writing this letter. He, it's because these, uh, he, you know, John had, had planted this church or he had seen a church develop and grow up anyway, probably in Asia Minor, probably somewhere in, in what is modern-day Turkey. And this, uh, this church had started off great and started off strong, but then some false teachers had come in and they had brought some false teaching with them when they came in, Okay. And this false teaching, it's, it might be a form of Gnosticism, an early form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism itself didn't really develop until the second century in, in its full-blown form, but it may, may have been something like that. But anyway, it was the idea that there was this special kind of knowledge that they had, this special kind of um, information that they had, this spiritual revelation or whatever that made these, these Gnostics, these pre-Gnostics or whatever, these, these false teachers kind of higher than 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 the other people around him, than the average Christian, okay? So they, they had brought this in with him. And John calls them false prophets. And a prophet usually is someone who speaks from spiritual inspiration, okay? They hear from God and they speak. So that's that's what a prophet usually is. He says they're, they're false prophets. They're hearing from the spirit world and they're proclaiming that, but they're false prophets. They're, they're, not, they're not proclaiming God's message, all right? So they were under spiritual inspiration, but it was uh, it was the inspiration of the enemy. He calls them deceivers, and that's because they were leading or they were trying to lead just the average, normal, regular, healthy Christians in the church, trying to lead them astray and and take them down a path of uh, false Christianity that they were teaching. They were deceivers. They were also he he gets really strong here and he calls them antichrists, antichrists, and that's not a very nice term, and you wouldn't expect the apostle of love to be throwing that term around too much, Antichrist. But he, he does. He throws it around here. And the reason he does that is because they had actually denied who Jesus was. 
They had denied that he was actually God come down in the flesh. Okay, they denied his physicality. They denied that he actually had a body like you, like you and I do. Okay, so they, they actually denied that. And, and he's going to get into that in his book, but he, he calls this, this kind of teaching, uh, and the people who follow this, he calls them antichrists. They didn't, and further, they denied that Jesus was actually even central to knowing God. Yeah, Jesus, you know, might have been relatively important. He's kind of on the periphery, but there are other ways you can know God. This special kind of knowledge that they had particularly was one of them. So they denied that Jesus was really central. So that's the why. The who was the Apostle John. And the why is because these false teachers had come in. And when they came in, they sowed all kinds of doubt amongst amongst the regular, normal, healthy Christians. Sowed a lot of doubt because they came in all high and mighty. And, and regular people are thinking, well, you know, maybe maybe I don't really have it. Maybe maybe that's not me. Maybe maybe I'm missing something. And so what? He, he writes the what? And he writes the three tests. And last time I spoke on this, I spent quite a bit talking about those three tests. And you, you remember what they are. There was the moral test, the question, do you obey God's commands? There was the love test, do you love God's people? Thirdly, there was the doctrinal test. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the divine and the human son of God? And John had every confidence that the people in this church, regular, normal, everyday healthy Christians were going to pass all three of these tests. He, he wasn't trying to trick them. He was trying to, to, to help encourage them. Here, look, these three tests, do you pass them? I'm certain you're going to pass them. But the false prophets, not so much. They didn't value obedience to God. Their form of religion didn't, didn't require holiness, a lifestyle of holiness. They didn't really care about loving one another and particularly loving uh, these other people in this church, they had given them a pretty hard time. And finally, they had abandoned the truth that Jesus was completely God, while at the same time being com- completely human. So that's a general overview of, of 1 John, very briefly, obviously. But the first epistle of John is meant to protect and to encourage this young church, while at the same time help them to weed out the influences of these false teachers, Okay. And today we're going to look at just the first four verses of chapter 1. It's called the prologue. And we're going to see that John here makes a pretty good start. So if you have your Bibles open to 1 John, I'm just going to read the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete so he starts building his case right off the back by going Right back to the foundation, what is the foundation of all Christian teaching. Now, I want to say parenthetically to all of you English teachers out there. You know, it, okay, just a, a review of English grammar. Normally, we have the subject, and then we have the verb, and then we have the object. That's the way we build sentences in English, okay? I, the subject, am reading, verb, the Bible, the object. Okay, that's the way we normally do it. Now, except for those of you who have the NIV, you're going to see that this first 
sentence here is goofy. Okay, it's all kinds of goofy. The objects all come first. That doesn't make any sense to us. The NIV, what does it insert? It inserts a verb in there. uh, We proclaim to you or something like that early on to make it clear to all of us English speakers uh, what's going on here. But for the rest of us, we're going to be talking about several objects, 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 and the verb doesn't come till the third sentence. Okay, proclaim. We're proclaiming to you. That doesn't come till the, the, the third paragraph there. All right. So um, he says here, right, right to begin with, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. Now, if you think about John's literature, what else John has written, what does that strike you as right away? It's very similar to the way John, the Gospel of John starts out, right? The Gospel of John starts out, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word is with God and the Word was God. And when you think about that, in the beginning was the Word, what does that sound like? That, that sounds like Genesis, all the way back to the first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? So he's, he's rooting what he's going to be saying all the way back to the beginning, okay? There's no arguing with this. This is all the way back to, to creation and even to before creation. The message of the gospel begins before history even started. Now, I, I think that's interesting because in our human thinking, we, we tend to think that, you know, the sinful fallen world you know, God's, God's kind of doing the best he can with this fallen world. But in reality, the gospel begins before history even starts. This is not God's plan B. This is not God doing the best that he can with what we've screwed up. This is his plan. He planned to send his son Jesus from the beginning, all the way back from the beginning, before Adam and Eve were even made. So the message that John is preaching started before history. And so this should keep us a little bit humble because he's not rooting it in our everyday experience. He's not, he's not rooting it in, uh, in something that's been, that's been done on earth or something that uh, some guy accomplished on earth or whatever. He's rooting it all the way back beyond us, beyond our experience in this tiny little world that we live in that seems so huge to us. Beyond our time, he's rooting it all the way back in eternity past. And though it comes from the beginning, from before history, the eternal, which was all the way back there, always has entered into our history somehow. And that is very humbling to me. Entered into my little world. You know, think of, um, you know, think if, if, if Ronald Reagan were still alive, for instance, and he came and visited your house and he wanted to play with your two-year-old grandson to enter into his little world. That's a tiny little imperfect picture of what's going on here the eternal entered into time our little world so it became anchored in history he says there in verse one what we've heard and why does he say that well all all of these things these objects that he's going to be saying he's going to be addressing the false teachers he's going to be correcting their teaching you see the false teachers thought that they had heard things too They had heard some special revelation from God, and that was what they were teaching. That was this knowledge, this gnosis, uh, this knowledge that they were teaching. They had had heard this special revelation. So they they had something that they had heard too. And John is saying, well, I heard something. I traveled around with him for three years, and I listened to him. I heard everything he said. I heard when he taught. I heard when he yelled. I heard when he snored. I knew him. I heard him. So this is what they, they heard. Not like the false prophets who, who had thought they had, they had heard from the spiritual world. 
And he, he's going to say here in, in, uh, later in chapter 4 and verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And John's saying, we heard something completely different. I heard him with my own ears. I heard him day in and day out. I heard him in the synagogue, and I heard him on Sunday morning, and I heard him all the time. All right? So he's, he's proclaiming what he heard. He goes beyond that then. And he says, which we have seen with our eyes and what we looked at. You see, these false prophets had seen visions. And uh, probably some of us have, have heard of others who have seen visions and started religions because of those visions. Okay, it happens and it happens in our day. And uh, these guys were saying, yeah, we've seen these special visions. We have these special, uh, you know, revelations, special connections. We've seen these visions. And, and, you know, if you were really spiritual, you would see the same kind of visions and you would have your own kind of visions. And then, then you would be mature like us. He's saying, well, those guys say that they've, they've seen visions. Well, no one's seen God. But I'll tell you who, I, who I've seen. And we saw him with our own eyes. This wasn't a trick. This wasn't some spiritual thing, and I wasn't napping at the time. I saw him day in and day out. I know what he looked like. I traveled around with him. He pointed things out to me. I saw his beard grow. And I saw it when he was hung on a cross. I saw it with my own eyes. He moves on. Which we have touched with our hands. I like this because the first two, the false prophets kind of they had heard things too, and they had seen things too, and that's kind of where they're coming from. He says, yeah, that's, that's great. I touched him. I touched him. Handled with our hands. The Greek word is handled, meaning like, like the way a blind man, when he's trying to figure out what you look like, is going to touch your face and feel it to know what it looks like. It doesn't mean to touch, like put your finger out and, and touch something. It means to, to handle it, to get your hands on it, to know what it feels like. Think about the life that these guys lived together, that the disciples and Jesus uh, lived together during this whole time. They would have shaken hands, you know. When they're, when they're sleeping out there in the cold, they were probably close together so they could be warm. You, Jesus washed their feet so they, they knew what his touch felt like. They had handled him with their hands. And John, of course, got to lean against Jesus while they were eating because they used to recline at table. And he would lean against him, and that's the way he ate. He was right there. He was right there. He touched him. He handled him. And, of course, after Jesus was resurrected, the disciples were given the opportunity to, to touch the wounds that had been left by the nails and the, and the spear in his side. They got to touch that. They got to touch him. They got to handle him. And when Jesus came as a little baby... That which was outside of history, completely beyond history and beyond all of us, entered right into our tiny little world. And John got to talk with him and listen to him. He saw him. He touched him. He handled him. And so John knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that the incarnation was real. It had really happened. It didn't seem to happen like these guys were teaching. It really happened. He was real. It actually become a human God had actually become human like us. Because of his time spent with Jesus, John was a unique authority on this foundation of true teaching. 
He also had a special certainty that his proclamation was true. Look back at chapter 1, starting right there at the end of verse 1. All these things have happened, that which, that which, that which, that which we, you know, is from the beginning. We, we heard him, we saw him, you know, we handled him. All those things were concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This is his proclamation. Now, the word life is pretty important in, in, John, in all of John's writing, really. But particularly in 1 John, it's really important. It's a short book, right? It's only five chapters. It's not very long. You can read it pretty quickly. And the word life occurs 15 times. 15 times. It's one of the most common words in the book. It occurs a lot. It's important to him. It's central. And remember what John says in, is his purpose for writing 1 John. Do you remember? 1 John 5.13. He says, I'm writing this whole thing so that you may know that you have eternal life. So his purpose is it so that they could know that they have eternal life. So it's important. It's very central to him. Jesus himself is both, both the messenger and the message of life. First of all, he's the messenger of life. People used to come to Jesus all the time. Of course, he was a kind of a traveling rabbi in a sense. And uh, people would come to him and say, uh, Jesus, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? Lord, wh- what do I have to do to have eternal life? Lord, tell me about life. I want life. How do I get it? So they recognized him as a messenger that told the truth, that bore the truth about life. And they would come to him. And even Peter said to him in John 6, verse 68. Remember, this is right after the bread of life discourse, which is very controversial in his day. He had huge crowds and then he preaches the bread of life discourse and whittles it right down because a whole bunch of people left and they couldn't take his teaching anymore. And so he turns to his disciples and he says, well, guys, do you want to leave too? And this is Peter's answer. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He's the messenger of life. And if you want the true message, you go to him. And Jesus said himself in uh, John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that they might have life. So he's the messenger. He's the messenger who brings eternal life. But he's also himself the message. He himself is the message. I want to run through just a, just a couple of verses here. John 1, 4. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. John three sixteen. All right, it finishes with, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He is the message. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5.12, he who has the Son has the life. That's First John 5.12, actually. Jesus, Jesus isn't just the messenger bringing news of eternal life from heaven. He's not just sent bearing some important message. But he actually himself is the message of eternal life. The word of life is the abstract, distant concept of eternal life that's hard to grasp. The word of life means that that distant, eternal concept became flesh like us in the person of Christ so that we could know him. It's not just some abstract concept anymore. It's embodied in the person of Jesus himself. So Jesus is the messenger of life. He's the message of life, but he's also the source of life, the source of life. John 14, 6 says, I am 
the way and the truth and the life. John eleven thirty five, I am the resurrection and the life. John ten twenty seven and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give them eternal life. No one shall, and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Eternal life actually comes from Jesus himself. And here's where the, the false prophets had really blown it, okay? Jesus says uh, he's the messenger bringing life. He is himself the message of life. He's the source of life. And the false prophets, they wanted to take him and set him aside. Okay, let's just get Jesus out of the way. We can deal straight with the Father. We don't need Jesus. He's not central. He's not important. They thought they could do that. And that's a huge error. And John is pointing out three reasons that's a huge error. You, you don't want to hear the message of life. You don't want to know the message of life. You don't want to deal with who is the source of life. Where do you think that puts you? That puts you outside of eternal life. That's setting you, that's setting you aside. You've made a huge, huge mistake. And John lays the proper groundwork here right out of the gate. If you want to have eternal life, there's no other way than through Jesus Christ himself. He himself is the word of life. He alone is the messenger, the message, and the source of life. And so my question to you is, are you trying to have eternal life without Jesus? Are you trying to find eternal life without Jesus? Are you under the, the impression that there's some way that you can be right before God without dealing with Jesus Christ? John is going to say throughout this whole book, you are misguided, misled, and you don't know the truth. You have to deal with Jesus. John's going to say later in his, his epistle, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's real simple. Real simple. You want to do business with God? You want to deal with eternity? You want to have eternal life? You've got to deal with the Son. You have the Son, you have the life. You don't have the Son, you don't have life. He's going to say in another place, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. It is absolutely impossible to be right with God without believing in Jesus, who is the word of life. So in dealing with these false teachers, John has laid out the foundation of true Christian teaching. He's laid out what the proclamation centers around. And now he moves on to his personal motivation for writing. Verses 3 and 4, I want to read those. He says, uh, he kind of resummarizes, that which we've seen and heard, so that's a parenthesis meaning everything that's come before, that which we've seen, seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John's first motivation is complete fellowship. Complete fellowship. I, I read this just this past week or maybe la the week before, I don't remember, on Facebook, okay? Source of all truth, Facebook. I, I admit it's not, I admit it's not, but I read it on there and I, I kind of stuck in my head. Shared joy is double joy. Shared sorrow is half a sorrow. Shared joy is double joy. Now, think about that for a second. When you get something that you really like or you learn about something that you really like, what do you want to do with it? You want to share it with other people. 
you want other people to get involved, right? Now, I'm, I'm this way a lot when it comes to books particularly, okay? When I come across a book or a new author that I like or whatever, and I really get excited about this book, I become like a salesman. And I'm, I'm, I'm not handing out books. I'm telling people to go buy their own copy, usually. But I can sell books because I get excited and I can convince you this is awesome because of this reason and this reason and this reason. Chris Ward's nodding his head up here. I, I'm so much of a salesman that I actually convince Chris Ward, here, borrow and read this book on economics, of all things, <laughs> because I'd made it sound so great. He's like, okay, sure, you know, sounds good. So he kept it for a few weeks out of politeness, and then he quietly gave it back to me and said thanks, and, you know, hadn't gotten past, you know, page nine or whatever. <laughs> but that's what we do is we share. We want to share what, what we have, right, what we really love, what we really care about. If we just love some new workout or if we just love some new author or some kind of new, I don't know, diet or some kind of food or something that we really love, we share it. We want to share it. We want to get other people involved. We want to have their fellowship in what we're doing, right? We want them to be involved. We want them to enjoy it just just like we enjoy it. And that's what John says his motivation is. And one of the great greatest motives for sharing the gospel with someone is exactly that. We want to bring them into the kingdom of heaven with us. We want them to be included in what we enjoy and what we love so much. We want them with us. The blessings that we experience from knowing Christ are so great that we want other people to join in with us. We want them to to know that also. We want others to join in. He says this fellowship we have isn't just with other believers. That That's pretty great. That's pretty great, right? Having a church family you can go to, that's a great thing. We've all gone through hard times, and, and, and the church family is, is really a support. But he says, that's, that's not our only fellowship. It includes them, but it goes way beyond them. It's actually fellowship with God the Father and with the Son. That's the fellowship that we have. That's a very special fellowship. And it's a, it's a true fellowship. It's, it's not like a, just a master and slave kind of relationship like we would think it would be. I mean, God, the creator of the universe, and here I am, a speck of dust in fallen Nevada. <clears throat> and, uh, you know... Um, that's not the relationship that, that, it, that it works out to be. We think, it, we think it should be that, but it's not. It's not just that. Nor is it just a, you know, a master and slave relationship or something like that. It's actually a parent-child relationship. Paul particularly talks about it over in Romans 18. He says, We have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And that's the kind of fellowship that we have with the Father and the kind of fellowship we want to invite other people into. And so, Christian, believer, are you trying to hide this lamp that you have under a basket, like Jesus said? Or are you trying to place it uh, upon a lampstand so that it'll light the whole house? Which are you trying to do? Are you trying to hide this joy? Are you trying to keep it from other people? Of course, we don't actively try and keep other people from joy. But is that what we're doing practically? Are we sitting on it? Are we sitting on it? Are we kind of keeping it under our vest? so that other people won't see it? Or are we out there sharing? Are we trying to bring people in? Do you invite others into the fellowship that we have with God? <clears throat> you know, I remember very clearly when I first heard the gospel, and I've talked about it several times, <clears throat> but Paul Sabino was sharing with me, and he gave his rationale, he gave his motivation for why he was sharing. You know, he was talking about eternity, he was talking about sin, he was talking about all this stuff. And then he, said, and then he started talking about heaven. He started naming off other people who are going to be in heaven. And he said, Brennan, 
you're not going to be there with me. And I want nothing more than for you to be there with me. That's what he said. That was his motivation. He just wanted me to be there with him. He wanted to invite me into this fellowship that he had, this newfound fellowship with God that he had. So not only is complete fellowship a huge motivator for John, so also is complete joy. Complete joy. Now think of this. John is the apostle of love. And he's, he's, he's an old man now. He's been around a while. He's seen this church. He cares about this church. He has a pastor's heart. He has a father's heart for this church. He calls them little children all through the book. He loves them. He cares for them. They're very important to him. And then someone snuck in and started teaching them lies and leading them astray. And at the very least, creating doubts in their own heart and probably, uh, you know, doing their best to lead others astray. What do you think he's going to feel? What do you think he's going to think? This is why I led this, the, the message this morning with the illustration of Michael Orr. I think all parents have this same fire that if their kids are endangered, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be something going on to fix that, right, to solve it. But, so, so John writes this whole book, that's what he's doing. But he talks about what his motivation is, what he really wants to see happen. What, what the, the kind of outcome that he wants to see and why, why he's so driven to write. And the reason he's so driven to write is because he wants his joy to be made complete. Now, does that mean he's just writing? He's thinking about himself. Boy, John, he really just thinks about himself. He's writing this whole letter just so he can be happy. Well, no, that's not it. But he wants he wants this dear church. To be protected from these guys who have snuck in. He wants him to be protected, to be safe from them. He wants to root out all the influence that they've had in, his li- in, in, in the life of this church. And at the same time, he wants to encourage the people in the church. And when they are encouraged and when they respond by sending these guys on their way, when they respond by coming back to, to uh, the confidence and the assurance of faith in Christ, then he will be completely happy. Nothing would make him happier than to see that happen. All right, so coming back to Parkside. Here we are at Parkside. Nothing makes us, as leadership here at Parkside, happier than to see people trust in Christ. Nothing makes us happier than to see people set aside the doubts and the fears that are in their life because of the lies of the devil, set those things aside, and trust in Christ with full confidence. Nothing makes us happier. That's what motivates us. That's what, that's what drives us all. We're ecstatic when people turn away from false notions of, of what, it, what it means to know God or false religions or things like that. We're ecstatic when people set those lies aside and they come and they do business with the Son of God, who's the Word of Life. That makes us so happy, and that's what motivates us. That's what drives us. Eternal life entered into our little world in the person of Jesus Christ. And he said that he would freely give eternal life to anyone who believes in him. So this morning, I want to make that available for all of you. Many of you have heard many times. You've heard about Jesus. You know about him. You know about your sin. You know you have a debt you can't pay. You know, the only way to get right with God is Jesus. But for those of you 
who've heard this for the first time, or maybe for the first time you're believing it. I, I, I want to talk to you after the service is over. I want you to come up and talk to me, please. Because this is a fellowship that, that we have that's not just fun and it's not just good times on uh, when we get together and whatever. This is fellowship that we have with the Father and with His Son. This is a unique child-father relationship that we have with the God of the universe. And trust me, you want in on it. You want in on it. So I just want to leave that with you, that uh, he makes that available. He said he'd give eternal life to anyone who asked him for it. So let's pray. Lord God in heaven, you didn't leave us down here on our own, but you sent Jesus from eternity into history from infinity into our little our little world so that we could know you, so that we could have eternal life. Lord, I pray that uh, we would receive that eternal life, that we would accept Christ, that we would trust in him. For those of us who have known you for a long time, Lord, we still continue to trust in Jesus for eternal life. For those who have, maybe have never heard, and this is new, Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts and their understanding. Help them to know they need to do business with Jesus. And for those who have heard and heard and heard and heard and still think they've got their own way, they can do it. Convince them, Lord. Convict them in the depths of their soul of that mistake. And bring them to yourself, Lord. Father, as we go out this week, may we bear with us this joy and may we offer it freely to other people to invite them into our fellowship. I pray that this would be a week that honors you. We would honor you with our time, with our conversation, with the way we live our lives and all that we do. May you be glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.